Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is Denny Tedesco. He's the director of a fabulous documentary called The Wrecking Crew, which focuses on an outstanding group of studio musicians who worked out of L.A. and backed pretty much everyone out there. Welcome, Denny. Hey. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. So I love this movie so much. I went back and watched it a second time when I knew you were coming on, and you know, one of the things is I think it would greatly appeal not only to music nerds like me and other Steve and perhaps you, but also to just anyone who loves music. It's, you know, it's funny because here's the thing. These films like The Wrecking Crew and my next film, Immediate Family, I, we call them music docs. But I, I want to say that's more to it because you don't even have to be a music nerd because there's more to it there's family there's friendships people relate to these players they're not stars and they're real people and i think that's what makes these films successful uh i'm not just talking about my films if you you know you have a storyline that an audience can relate to it's easier to get across listen my feeling is you walk in there and you already got 50% of them interested because they already know the music. So that's easy. It's like almost like shooting fish in a barrel, as they say, because it's like every song they'll probably, out of 110 songs, I guarantee an audience will know at least 95 of them. But you have to give them more than that. And I, that's where I, I try to do that. And I hope I do. They're real people. And that's what I'm always trying to get across. Oh, that comes across loud and clear. As does the fact that these were all... I don't want to say nameless, more unknown, but they were all virtuosos and they learned to play rock and roll on the fly, right? Due to demand. Well, it was, you know, the Wrecking Crew, why it was different is because don't forget 1960 when my, my dad's, by the way, my dad, Tommy Tedesco came into the business, really came into the business about around 55, 56, 57, 58. He's starting to get into the recordings. He's doing more jazz. It's all mostly jazz stuff. And the first things are coming out in the late fifties. But when 1960s start rolling around, rock is at its infancy. Do you know what I mean? The labels are pushing rock because they're realizing, oh, it can sell. And so in a sense, that's how these guys get into it. Yeah. They're creating licks. They're creating ideas or copying other ideas you know they're Dwayne Eddy's going one way and Dick Dale's doing the other things so they're copying the studio players are kind of copying them too because that's the sound that's going that way so they're taking all their bag of tricks from what they grew up with either it was country or it was jazz they're bringing all that to the table in the in the mid in the 60s for their rock and roll stuff in LA so that's how that all starts going and then you know it just develops well, that's a key thing to talk about being in the right place at the right time. You talk about the music shifting, but the industry also had a massive shift away from New York and to L.A. Huge. Again, in the early 60s, New York and Detroit, London and probably Nashville had basically pop music recordings. 
in Los Angeles was a big infrastructure because we had the movies and TV was happening. So you had the musicians here. And once guys like Brian Wilson and Phil Spector start going in the early 60s, they're using all these guys, you know, the same guys, you know, Hal Blaine, my dad, Tommy Tedesco. They're starting to get called more and more and more. And now the hits are coming out of LA. So some producers are starting to go, oh, let's get those guys. And you start seeing the trend go towards Los Angeles and the West Coast because of a sound. Um, whether or not it was a real sound or not, I think it was. But it was a natural progression. And then it is everybody I asked, every producer, every artist, the question was, what brought everybody out here? And they always started with the sunshine. <laughs> so it was like, I mean, it was like almost like I set them up. It was like, what? You, it, it was literally, I think everybody, because New York and those cities are hard at that time. You know, especially like musicians in New York, you know, you had to bring amps up the stairs or, you, or wherever you had to go, or they had an amp there. But, you, you know, L.A. was easy. It's a piece of cake to get around here at that time, you know. So it was a lot less, um, it was looser in terms of being uh, tied down here. Right. And, and you know, probably a city more on the upswing, you know, and as hip as New York is, you know, like yeah. you say, you had winter, you had, you know, a really urban environment. And these guys, you know, you can tell that they loved L.A. and they all settled oh, yeah. in there. And um, the bands that they worked with, and this brings in not the music nerds, but that other piece that is so critical to the success, I think, of this is... You know, we're talking the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, probably one of the top five albums ever made. And you've got Ronnie Spector, you mentioned, The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, Herb Alpert, Cher, Nancy Sinatra. There, there was really no bounds to the style of music. You know, the business was different then. I mean, they had A&R. You know, you could develop artists. You know, how it would work is someone have an idea, they bring in the artist, they get a song, could be out of the Brill Building, or it could have been Steve Barry or one of the guys out here. They go in, record a single. Single becomes a hit. Okay, let's go back and record the rest of an album. And sometimes, you know, don't forget these groups sometimes didn't have, or they might have had traveling bands, but they weren't the ones recording. And that was the big difference is these guys um, were so good in the studio, they could knock it out in a day, two days. They would knock out an album. Um, they were allowed three-hour sessions by the union. I mean, you could do three hours, you could do... Uh, three to four songs, that was it. They didn't want you to do a whole album in three hours. It was pr protecting them, you know. And But they would do those three songs, move on to the next session, and they would do three or four dates a day, you know, and that's a lot. You know, that's 12 hours a day. My father's going to work, you know, maybe nine in the morning and, you know, universal, then go in a one o'clock date, uh, eight o'clock date, or 11 o'clock midnight date. You know, like Bobby Darren would want to get, you know, get off a club date and come and record while he was warm. And this is how it went. And it was just so fast. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. I'm not even sure there was a question. <laughs> well, it's interesting because one of the things about this this movie that I found is trying to reconsider some of these guys who you don't know, yet you know all there's music. And there's others across the states. You know, there was the Fame Band and Muscle Shoals and, yeah. you know, lots of Nashville. these. Nashville, right? right? Yeah. And and it's so interesting because they're all friends. They're all locals. And you can tell that when they start playing, that they know each other very, very well. And, you know, I think you're right. The economy of time 
help these guys out with the labels because it's all about money at the end. Don't forget, we only have one track in the early days, in the early 60s. So you're doing mono. So you get 10, 20, an orchestra or whatever in there. No one can make any mistakes. You aren't going in with the computer and popping in and, you know, hey, I'm bar 32, come in here, da, da, da. None of that's going on. You go right back to the beginning. If you made a mistake, yeah, you go back. But if you start making a lot of mistakes, we're all in trouble because you know what? For one o'clock, I get another date. I'm leaving here in 20 minutes. So the pressure on these guys and Carol Kay, the one woman, was extraordinary. But, you know, but it was after a while, it was not pressure because they were so, like you said, they know each other. They're in the groove. So they were all a team. You get into that groove with these musicians. It's it's like uh, Lee Scalar said with playing with uh, Russ Kunkel, his buddy. It's like putting on an old set of loafers. Do you know what I mean? It's comfortable. You know where each other's going. So let's talk about one of the greatest bands that many people don't know. Tell me about the guitar player. Uh, well, that was a loaded question, wasn't it? <laughs> a little bit. My dad was one of these guitar players in the session studios in those days. His name was Tommy Tedesco. And my dad and mom came out in uh, from Niagara Falls, New York in 1953. He was, they went to a dance. This is the most bizarre thing because my dad in Niagara Falls, 1953, I asked my mom before she passed, I said, was dad working a lot in music? She goes, no, he was at the chemical plant working. He goes, mm-hmm. occasionally he had a, you know, a, like a casual, like a wedding or something. And he had a little jazz trio that would play out of town, but that was it. There was no music. And what happened was they went to a uh, school dance in Niagara, Niagara University and he didn't even want to go and because he had actually a gig in um, uh, Pennsylvania and with his trio. And my mom was said to him, you have to go because I spent $35 on this dress. I mean, it was a big deal, $35 and it was. Um, so she made him go and he went begrudgingly and he gets there and one of his friends finds out that the guitar player in the big band, which was a, called the Ralph Martiri band was losing his guitar player that evening after that. And so he said, I've got a friend that plays guitar. So my dad basically tries out, gets the gig, leaves on the road for the next day, like gone for a couple, like a month or two, six weeks, whatever it was. And they get to LA. He's going, oh my God, this is great. But at the same time, he and the um, singer are let go because they, this, Ralph Martieri found someone that could sing and play. So it was like, you know, downsizing, make more money. So my dad... Not embarrassed, well, I'm sure embarrassed, but also very, you know, his pride was hurt. Says to my mom, hey, I think we should move out to Los Angeles. And he goes all the way, you know, drives, gets out of Dallas, the last gig, goes all the way to Niagara Falls. And I said to my mom, how long was it before you guys moved to L.A.? About a year, a year and a half? She goes, no, it was three weeks. <laughs> he was so ashamed for being let go. So his pride was the greatest thing that helped his career in a sense. So they go to Los Angeles and he starts this whole, you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's looking for. He heard about studio player when he, you know, studio playing. And Herb Ellis, he met Herb Ellis at the time. And then it was um, Howard Roberts and guys like that. And so he starts slowly, you know, getting in. And finally around 58, now he's working as a studio player. So that's what started his career. He could read. Oh, he was a monster reader, they tell me. I mean... He had the reputation as being probably the best sight reader in the studios ever in L.A. uh, for guitar. 
And then the other guys that were in the band, you had Glenn Campbell, who was the opposite, couldn't read a note, but a monster on the guitar, you know? And then you had another guitar player, you had Billy Strange, you had Bill Pittman, you had Howard Roberts and Barney Kessel on occasions. And you had a, you had a lot of backup in LA. Meaning like, it's not like, I won't even mention a small town, but if you went to, let's say Des Moines, well, I will, <laughs> let's just say, <laughs> or whatever you're you might have one or two monster players you're what do you call it um your back what do you call it on a basketball team in the, not the bench yeah it is the bench you know you had the bench well la had a big bench so if so-and-so wasn't available you call so-and-so and vice versa and that's how it went so you had a good eight guitar players that were monsters in town bass players you had at the t in the early days it was uh Ray Pullman and then you had Carol Kay the woman and then you had uh Lyle Ritz and then you had drums you had Hal Blaine or Earl Palmer and later it was Jim Gordon um piano you had Don Randy uh Leon Russell that's how it was you had backup you had a good bench and so, but don't forget they would have four guitar players on a session three or four piano players, like in just in uh, Phil Spector dates, he filled all of those positions with multiple. That's how it went down. And, you know, slowly the same guys keep getting hired. Was telling your dad's story a part of the draw for you to make this film? Absolutely not. It's really weird you say that because when I say absolutely not, yes, it was, but it, how it went down was dad was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer in 96. Well, when they say terminal cancer, you just know they don't even talk about treatments. So I thought I want to always wanted to tell his story and his friend's story called the Wrecking Crew. And I quickly talked to I talked to Dad. I said Let's, we put this round table together, and I had Dad, Hal Blaine, Carol Kay, and Plaz Johnson, the saxophone player there. And Earl was supposed to be Palmer was supposed to be there, but he got sick. Quickly did a round table with two cameras, and it was fabulous, great day. Um, then I just started building on that. The whole goal was to tell a story about this group called the Wrecking Crew. Well, when we started cutting this film, we were like 20 minutes in, you know, a few years later. And a friend of mine said, why are you cutting it like this? I said, what do you mean? He goes, any one of us could tell this story how you're cutting it. Meaning you're not involving yourself in terms of your relationship to this film. And the reason I wasn't because my ego, you would have thought would have been the other way, the way it went, but it was my ego saying, don't do that. Because once I did that, I became part of this film and tell him the story of my father and his friends. It took away the fact that I'm a director. I'm the son of the person we're talking about. So I was reluctant, but once we did it, it opened up the door to much easier cutting wise for me. I could tell the story of my father as well as theirs and go in and out with the storyline. And there was a point where it was Sundance that had a question. We weren't sure, they didn't take us, but it, he had, it was really kind. He said, we just weren't sure if you were telling the story of your father or the wrecking crew. And that note had come up a couple of times. And I said, totally get it. And then I said, I was talking to a friend that wasn't a filmmaker. And he goes, well, why don't you just say it's the story of my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew. I went, Oh yeah, that works. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, it wasn't a filmmaker and I never got that note again. Hmm. It was just a simple setup, but it made a better story. 
and I just felt, you know, so in a sense, yes, it was the story of my father, but I think it was, I was reluctant to tell that story. Well, the way that you did cut it, and I want to get to some of those stories where sometimes your dad is involved too with the other people, but they're amazing to watch either tell stories or tell stories on their instruments. But um, I noticed that there's just some amazing footage in this film. And some of the stuff that I enjoyed most was with your dad. And it was, I think, a single sequence where he's sitting on a stool at a club or something and he's telling jokes and he's telling stories. He's at a seminar at Musicians Institute. And this kind of goes back. Musicians Institute or GIT at the time was, a, it still is, a school in Hollywood that he was one of the founders of it. What happened was in 1983, I was still in school, 82, 83, and at Loyola Marymount, and a friend of mine wanted to do a documentary on guys or folks that are in there, not the directors and not the actors, folks that are like the greatest cinematographer that others look up to. And he said, why don't we do it on your dad? Because he's the top of his, you know, the food chain there. And so we did, and it was, and we used all that footage during that time period in 83. Well, the film never went anywhere. You know, we were college kids and it played on local PBS or whatever. Um, but that footage always has stayed with me. His seminars were so influential to so many guitar players around the world. Um, his seminars and his articles in Guitar Player Magazine, it meant a lot. The moments he's speaking about things kind of set me up for, hey, we're talking about the business. Hey, we're talking about failure. Hey, we're, you know, so he would share these stories and it was a perfect segue for me to kind of bring in the humor. You know, he'd tell these kids in these seminars, you have to have common sense. And he goes, you take a job if you have four things. One, it's fun. Two, it's learning. Three, for the money. And uh, four, for connections. If it doesn't have one of those four, don't waste your time. You know, and that was, uh, things like that, I learned so much from my dad. And those were really practical. And even getting this film done, I used it. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about some more of the family or the band. The bass player, Carol Kay, is just a phenomenal player, a woman in the 50s and 60s, I'm assuming, and a yeah. fabulous interview. One of the things that I really loved about the movie is how these musicians show and play us parts to teach us the music and also show us what they played on. When she plays the bass line for the beat goes on, yeah. that is incredible. Yeah. Don't forget at this point, dad's gone. Um, a lot of people are gone as I'm filming, you know, when Carol sits down and starts playing, you know, showing us what she did and how she changed how the beat goes on. One, the same guy, the same friend of mine, his name's Grady Cooper, um, said, you gotta have more of that in there, you know, people with their instruments. Well, here's the funny thing is, these guys are studio musicians. That, you know, it's not like they were playing live and whatever, and it, mentally I was thinking, well, how do I do that? And then I went, wait a minute. And I thought, Let's just, how do I do it with how, right? Because you're just gonna hear boom, 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 boom. I thought, wait a minute, duh. Just put him in the studio like he was, like he always was he, with headphones. And if I was in that room and didn't know what the playback was, I would just hear bum, 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 or and then I start bringing in Be My Baby. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to tease the audience with these drum beats and not know what he's playing and then slowly mix it in. But that came out of a necessity because of Carol 
playing that. And that changed the direction of the film. It made sense then to do that. And, you know, people listen to music differently when they see these films because they're understanding why a, a bass player is needed or a guitar player's lick in the background or a drummer's hits. And, you know, you start separating it mentally in your head while you're listening. Uh, for me, it's funny because I can't hear a lyric to save my life, but I can hear the guitar player way in the background doing a lick. No one else hears it. My, I drive my wife crazy in a restaurant. I go, you hear that? You know, and she goes, I don't hear anything. I said, it's dad playing. Well, it's funny. That's why I brought up uh, The Beat Goes On with Sonny and Cher, obviously. A great song, a great pop song. Some people might consider it a little light, you know, but after Carol shows that bass line, I challenge anybody not to think it's brilliant, you know, and that's why I reacted that way. Yeah, and the thing is, for those who haven't seen it, when you see, you understand, Carol sets it up as it was pretty damn light at the beginning. It's like my father would say, I play for smiles. He goes, I go in there, there's a piece of paper there sometimes, a piece of sheet music or whatever, and I need to make that leader smile. So he, he's getting what he gets. Now, I will play what I think is right first. You know, so there's a guy there maybe, but it doesn't mean he's going to play it because my father will say, he'll just start playing something. And if they said, no, you know, don't do that. Let's do that. Yeah, okay. And he'll keep playing what they want or until he gets a smile because then he knows he got, he got what they want. There's times when you jump out and take a chance. The Ray Charles song was uh, that he recorded was the, uh, it, it's not easy being green, you know, the Muppet song. And I use it at the end of the film and people go, where'd that come from? Mm. And the reason is it shows the, when Ray Charles sat down to do that, that song, he starts playing with his piano, solo piano. Well, what happened at that point was my father starts playing against him, doing the fills and stuff. And Ray goes, wow, what, wow, that's great. What, you know, he said, yeah, let's keep doing that. It wasn't written. There was nothing there because my father wasn't supposed to come in for a while because there were supposed to be strings there. So what my father did is basically took over the string section, you know, because he could hear it and he just started listening to Ray. That's where these musicians are. They listen and they do it. If it's not right, then they've just been told it's not right. And that's okay. They move on. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Denny Tedesco, who's the director of The Wrecking Crew, a fabulous documentary. Uh, everyone should go see this movie. I, I really, really enjoyed it. You mentioned Hal Blaine, and he's one of the quote-unquote big names. He would go on to play with some huge names for huge salaries and then lose everything. But he has a moment that rivals Carol Kay's to me when you put on Elvis Presley's A Little Less Conversation. You know, that's another moment. That's a great song. But, you know, to your point, you hear the music. I think a lot of people listen to the words or whatever. But when you see Hal Blaine playing that drum track, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah. He, I mean, he was an extreme innovator. He would listen to the song playback first or whatever it was. He would tune his drums to fit that. And um, that's what he would do. And my father said there were two drummers in his life that were 110% like 
monster drummers that would never, you know, it didn't matter if it was a bar mitzvah or you were recording with uh, Elvis or Frank Sinatra. He said, Hal Blaine and Shelly Mann, the great jazz drummer. Hal was extremely, like, he wanted hits. He wanted to make sure he was given 110% to everybody. He was amazing. You mentioned Leon Russell, who I love his solo work and some of his production work. I was blown away. He recalled getting paid 10 bucks a song. In the early days, there were non-union dates. When the Wrecking Crew name came about, Hal made it up. And that's why you see at the beginning of my film, you'll see there's a discrepancy of how I set it up. Wrecking Crew came out of a book that Hal uh, wrote in the early 90s. And basically the story was, in the early days, when my dad and all these guys were doing these uh, rock and roll dates, they were non-union. So they were the rock and roll stuff. Not all non-union, but there was a lot of the rock and roll stuff. So the legit musicians, and when I say legit, the ones that are, are doing the big movie calls, you know, those were the prize, to, you know, those were the prizes. You get on a movie call and in those days, you know, that's a pretty big thing. So they're seeing these guys come in like my father and Hal, even though in 1960, my dad's 30, but they're still seeing this rock and roll and they're going, the older guys saying, they, these guys are going to wreck the business playing this stuff. So that's where the name Wrecking Crew came out of. Part of it was because some of these things were breaking in, these rock and roll dates were non-union. The, you know, they were called dark dates and literally a dark date meant union guys coming around to the studio, turn off the lights. Literally, that's where it comes from. So they were taking chances because they were breaking into that world. Just because your union doesn't mean you shouldn't be punished so bad. You know, it's a, it's a fine line of union versus non-union. Doesn't mean that they're better musicians either way. But when they're breaking in, they got to take those jobs and they, that's what they did. And they got to that point where it was like $10 a song or, uh, you know, or whatever the negotiation was, three for, uh, you know, 40, whatever it was, you know, breakdown. So that's how that stuff happened. You just break and break in. And then you get so busy, then you're union. I'm not taking those jobs. I, A, I'm not going to get busted, but also I want my union rate. There was a good story of my father and um, Sonny Bono. He said the last time he worked with Sonny, where Sonny was the leader. Sonny, you know, worked for um, Spectre as a, uh, you know, as his gopher and whatever. And Sonny's, Sonny starts going off on his own and da, da, da. And Sonny was, you know, he could be a pain in the ass in those days. I mean, you know, he had a reputation of being a pain in the ass. So Sonny calls my father, says, you know, can you come in and do the share thing or whatever it is, da, da, da. He goes, I'll pay you $20, you know, per song. And my father said, no, he, now at this point, my father's busy enough. He's going to turn it down. I'm not doing it, Sonny, because that means $20. It could be a three hour session, four hour session. If you're still struggling with uh, one song and I, I, $20 an hour, that's fine. Whatever it was. So of course the session goes long and the guy next to him is only getting $20. And my dad walks away with 60, you know, it was one of those things. And he goes, Sonny never hired me again <laughs> until Sharon and Snuff Garrett were working. That's when he came back. Well, it's funny the names that were involved. And, you know, you mentioned Glenn Campbell. I did not know he was a session guitar player. You know, I knew Wichita Lineman and the, the country western stuff. Um, but he was a really good guitar a, player. My dad said he, of all those guys he sat next to in terms of real rock and roll for my dad at the time, don't forget, we're saying early rock and roll, that early 60s. He said he was the best. He had 
ears like an elephant, couldn't read a note. I mean, you could give him an arrangement, but he would, there was even that line in the movie, I think, where Glenn says, when do I solo? He goes, you know where the melody is? And he explains to him where it is. He goes, oh, okay. Because he didn't read a note. He knew where he was, but my, he would ask the guitar players next to him, my father or whoever was there, said, hey, what do you do? And they was, you know, because they love Glenn. And he said, you know, just do this. And then that was it. And they let him loose. It was like a horse, you know, on a horse track. As soon as you let him go, it was like gone. And he'd kill him. And the other thing that we had that everybody found out was a great voice. So on those early sessions in the early 60s and stuff, he would not just, you know, they run through it. And sometimes they didn't have a the artist there. So they said, um, Glenn, do you mind doing a um, lay down the sound of the vocal for us, you know, as a spec track? You know, can you imagine all those tracks that he probably sang that were hits later with other people? Who knows what he's saying? He has an amazing story about your dad, because as you mentioned, he was a terrific sight reader. He had some music upside down at one point. And, and what did that cause him to do? My dad, go backwards, go backwards. <laughs> when my dad came out in the 50s, you know, when he wasn't working, he would sit at home and just read and practice, practice, practice. He would practice eight, 10 hours a day. Didn't matter. He'd watch a TV and just do this, just fingers, fingers, fingers. And then he would read music. And don't forget, in those days, there wasn't a lot of music, you know, written music. And he could transpose instantly on the spot. But what he was able to do when he would have, let's say, a standard, oh, he knows, you know, God bless a child. Well, let's flip it upside down. Let's read it backwards. I don't understand his head. I know he was really into math. He was a gambler. He loved gambling. And I think all those patterns, he was able to, like, instantly see it. Whatever. I mean, that's my theory. But the guy said he was phenomenal. So what happened on the Jan and Dean date was the guys were sitting ready to go. And my father stands up, walks towards his music. And Jan was getting frustrated with everybody. He said, Tommy, sit down. Okay. So my father doesn't get to the music, which is upside down. My father was a ball buster, by the way, guys. If you didn't see it in the, <laughs> if you didn't see it in the film, <laughs> he was like exactly like that. He could bust your chops at home or at work, lovingly or not so lovingly. So when he sits down and he starts playing that song, whatever the Jan and Dean song, he's playing it upside down. And it goes like 20 seconds, 30 seconds before Jan goes, oh, whoa, 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 Tommy, what are you playing? <laughs> what do you mean? I'm just playing, I'm just, you know, you get until Jan walks around flips it over. So a big part of the film is having several different groups of people and the uh, players and maybe from different eras or different instruments. They get together and talk and reminisce like in a very casual setting. And it's obvious they're very into it. Was that hard to set up? No. I mean, the first one was obviously the one I wanted more round tables and the round table discussion came out of me watching growing up really, because I never saw my father with an instrument. My father went to work like every other dad. The only difference is, you know, instead of a saw or a drill or whatever hammer in the back of the car, he had a 12 string, a classical acoustic, an amp and a tele, whatever it was, that was his tools. So dad went to work. He never played at home in the sixties because he was working all day, 12 hours a day. So all I know is banter. You know, I really understand musician talk. Now I don't mean technical talk. I mean, 
that kind of like eavesdropping on these guys, laughing and joking and teasing or whatever. There was a movie that Woody Allen did called um, Broadway Danny Rose, one of my favorite films. And it was a coffee shop situation where the old managers are talking about Broadway Danny Rose, who was Woody Allen. And what I loved about that movie, which I love about Barry Levinson's Diner, is banter. I love people stepping on each other's lines. I love that. It's real. And that's how I grew up in the house. A lot of noise, you know, and it's not music. And so when I set the first one up, the round table, that's how I saw it. And that's how it came off. Um, I would just throw a line out there and they would take it and they would run with it. I just ended up doing that same thing on my next film. And it's so much fun to do that because you don't have to interview. You kind of become a voyeur and let them do it. You know, I don't want to be part of it. Then getting the artist, the hardest part is, you know, when you're getting a Cher or a Brian Wilson, whatever, you got to get past the gatekeeper. If you can get past the gatekeeper, you might have a chance with these artists. And I knew I did because when my dad in 1960s, 30 years old, Cher is 1962, 63, she's a teenager. These are good times for her. This is not Cher in 1985, where there's a lot of business involved. Same thing with Brian Wilson. He's just a kid at 19 at that time. So I knew if I could get to the artist, we had a chance and I always did. Yeah, you can definitely see how tight these people are and were, and it's it's a ton of fun to watch. But it's also nice that you got to interview people like Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell before they passed. And um, yeah, you know, I guess uh, one of the folks in in the roundtables stated bluntly, "It wasn't supposed to go on forever," and it makes it a little sad. Funny you said that because it's, I think you always dream it's never going to stop, and that's for everybody. And that was one of the here's the it's one of the greatest lines came from Bones Howe. Don't forget, when I'm making this film in 1990, Dad's 60. 1992, Dad has a stroke. You know, that ends his career, basically. Dad, in 1990, Dad's only getting calls for he for Dad. Where he, it's a lot of reading, it's a John Williams thing, or a James Horner thing, or The Godfather 3, or Schindler's List, you know, something, or Mandolin, or Bazooki, something that he's, like, Call Tommy, he'll nail it. He's not getting those calls where the next generation of guys are working, which is understandable. And he always knew that. He just knew the same thing as like at the beginning of his time. There's a point where everybody slides over, new guys come in, old guys go out. When I brought this up to Bones Howell, the great producer engineer, I said, Bones, what's it like when you're on the A team? You know, you guys are at the top of the world. You're doing fit dimension, producing all this stuff. And, you know, 30 years later, you're not there. You guys aren't there doing that anymore. What does that feel? I, and I'm going from watching my father and others go through this. And he said, it's like being in baseball. You're in the minors. Now you hit the majors and you're at the top. And then you got that ramp down. He says it's not about staying at the top as long. It's about taking that ramp down as long as possible. And I remember doing an interview, with a podcast with Mark Marin. And I, we were talking about that story. And his line was the best. I understood it. He goes, yeah, because we all want to be relevant. I said, yeah, you're right. You know, my mom, she was a musician. She, you know, took care of the family, took care of the kids. She worked for a few years. Even at the end when she's asked me questions, how's it going? She wanted to be relevant. We all want to be relevant to our loved ones or friends or just strangers. And that's what it's about is being able to give something and feel appreciated. And I think that's what it's about. So this may be one of the parts of your film that I really liked a lot, 
and I love the whole film, but as, as a longtime art and creative director in the music industry, um, I wanted to give you a chance, and maybe it's you, uh, to shine a light on somebody. The opening graphics in your film are just terrific. In fact, all of the interstitial graphics, they're just so groovy and yet appropriate. And were those, were you involved or were those your ideas? Yes and no. I watched the movie Wrecking Crew, the Wrecking Crew, which is the Matt Helm, Dean Martin movie in the 60s. I was watching it because I want, I, I had this idea that when we we're making this film, maybe someone says, get me the Wrecking Crew and I'll license that little piece of film from the movie. I, if you ever watch that film, please email me because I still don't know why they were called the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> I have no idea. I never saw the, anything come across. I never heard it, never figured it out. But the graphics of the opening were brilliant. And I brought my artist, uh, my graphics artist, his name's Rick Morris. He's brilliant. He goes, yeah, they're brilliant. He goes, that's because they're Saul Bass. Oh, wow. So we went off of that genre, that feeling of that, exactly that. It, it is. It stands out. It's still, it's really appropriate for that. Exactly. It places the timing for all of this that's going on just perfectly. Thanks so much for your time, Denny. That's Denny Tedesco, the director of the documentary film The Wrecking Crew. Don't be intimidated if you don't know that band, because I promise you, you will know all of the tunes. So much fun, and you can find it now on Hulu. And speaking of fun, please tune into our upcoming bonus chat with Denny on a brand new film he has directed called Immediate Family which follows a band of musicians who are at the genesis of the singer-songwriter era in the 1970s. Interviews include the band, as well as Carol King, Keith Richards, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, and more. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.